Welcome to episode 233 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In episode 210, I interviewed Drew Uchuk, a public interest lawyer at the University of Calgary, about a study he co-authored on the Alberta Conventional Oil and Gas Liability Management System. Regular listeners will recall that Drew was an important expert source for part two of Energy Media's Unethical Oil series. I'm now writing part three, which is about the oil sands, so you can imagine how pleased I was when Drew and Professors Martin Olashinsky and Andrew Leach released their new paper, Not Fit for Purpose, Oil Sands Mines and Alberta's Mine Financial Security Program. So I'm going to talk to him about that. Welcome to the interview, Drew. Thanks for having me on again. Now, we are going to, this interview will be split roughly in three parts. We're going to talk about the principle that underlay the uh, conventional oil and gas uh, licensee liability program, because the same principle was applied to the to the mine financial security program. Then we're going to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of how that gets calculated. And and frankly, folks, uh, it was so comp it was it was more math based than this poor. Uh, reporter could it could uh, could digest. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I think you know we'll just go through the basics, and then we want to talk about you know what are the conclusions, what are the the what's really wrong with with this program. So let's start with the LLM. Uh, can you give us a little bit of the history, and then it was launched in two thousand, and then it blew up spectacularly by by twenty twenty. So you know, can you just sketch that out for us, Drew? So this is looking back at the conventional field, which is uh, the traditional oil and gas wells. Uh, the regulator builds the LL, uh, licensee liability rating program or the licensee liability management program. It has both names and it incorporates more things over time. But the idea is that very little financial security in the form of cash or bank bonds or anything need to be put up to make sure that these things get closed. Because if a company runs into financial problems, the regulator can take their oil and gas wells, and those wells will be the source of value to pay to make sure that those wells get cleaned up. And that I spent years trying to come up with the best metaphor for it that I could. And it, it's such a strange idea that the best I ever got was that it's like if instead of paying your car insurance, you assured the insurance company that if you crashed your car, they could take your car to pay to repair your car. But if you <laughs> crash the car, the car is wrecked. So when companies go bankrupt, their oil and gas companies go bankrupt, it's usually because their oil and gas assets have little or no remaining value. So the system almost always fails. And by the time the regulator steps in to say, whoa, 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 we got to you know, take some of your stuff, you have to post security. The company says, we're not posting security because we don't have any money. And if you want to take our wells, go ahead. They're not valuable. That's the problem. Uh, so that is the heart of the problem with the asset to liability which means using the assets as collateral to pay for the liabilities of those same assets approach. It's not a good approach. It has some kind of really weird thinking in the background. Uh, that's that's what causes, there are other problems. You'll have to go to the other episode. 
But that's the heart of the problem, the conventional field. And we'll see it again here. Yeah. The, the weird thing going on with uh, behind the scenes with this is that the Alberta government, going back to the 1930s when it established the first regulator, uh, has never, except for a little tiny bit for, for 30 or 40 years, taken security at the beginning of the well's life cycle. And once you don't take it at the beginning, or you don't take nearly enough at the beginning, then you run into the problem of where do you take it? And this is the thing that Alberta has struggled with, with oil and gas assets, is that they prioritize uh, industry growth and profitability, capital allocation, uh, capital attraction, job creation, and government revenues through, through royalties and taxes, and that's why they didn't take it at the beginning. They didn't want to the the companies to have to pay put more money up as security. They wanted the, them to spend that money on exploring and, and drilling more wells. So once you make that, once you go down that road, you were committed. And and they've never found a way back, and they've struggled for decades to come up with some kind of a scheme that will that will incentivize and ensure that companies will will reclaim their oil and gas assets at the end of their life and they failed they've utterly failed this is a there's a hundred billion dollars worth of liabilities on the uh on the conventional oil and gas side it's just for the wells another 30 for billion for pipelines and the aer's unofficial estimate for the oil sands is 130 billion and i would say it's far far higher than that more than likely so they've taken the principle of a failed program that in conventional production and then applied it to oil sands mining and i should point out when this was the uh when it was the system was brought in in 2000 there were 25,000 wells in the inactive and suspended category, which is, you think of that like a de facto orphan well. Uh, should be an orphan well, but under Alberta's weird rules is not. It's just in limbo. By 2020, that figure had risen by to 97,000. It had quadrupled 400%. It did exactly the opposite of what the regulator said that it intended to do. Okay, so we've established that the other that the principle sucks. <laughs> its performance in the conventional side of the industry sucked, and and we're going to conclude that frankly, its application here sucks. Uh, so, but let's talk before we get to there. Get to that point. Let's talk about how this thing actually works. Can you give us without getting into the the math that's in the paper too deep? Can you give us, an, you know, just explain to us how it works? Um, so it, the the MFSP comes in in 2014. And to, before answering your specific question, I'll go back to your comparison between the conventional field and the, the oil sands mines. That one way to think about it is that the oil sands mines are shifted off in time from the conventional field. So the conventional field's older and they start using this asset to liability approach around 2000, 2002, it comes in in a weird way, but it comes in in the mine financial security program in 2014. Uh, and so with the mine financial, with the oil sands mines, 
and the bitumen production, we haven't seen it start to implode yet. Uh, but it it will because it's the same general approach. Uh, but if you set that 14 year difference in them, you get an idea of where things are going. Right. And we should point out that the reason it hasn't imploded yet is because the the assets, the oil sands assets, haven't come to the end of their productive life yet. And it, none of them have. None of them have started to run into big running out of assets problems that the uh, conventional field has already seen quite a number of companies run into. And the other thing is that they probably won't run into the actual running out of assets problem. They'll run into lower oil prices because of climate change issues, which is something we'll return to later in the discussion. But the Mine Financial Security Program has four pieces. The first is the base security deposit. This is security that was collected before the Mine Financial Security Program existed. The old program apparently had no structure at all. The Auditor General would just comment, I have no idea why you've collected this amount of money. None of your notes seem to explain it to me. Can you come up with some kind of system so we can actually review this? So the amounts of money collected here aren't really connected to anything. They just kept them from the old program. Uh, and that money that was in the program in 2010 is exactly or $1 more, for some reason, I don't know where the dollar comes from, uh, the same that we have today. It just, from 2010 to 2023, Alberta does not have any higher amount of security at all than it did in 2010. Right. And that amount was 900 million approximately, right? Yeah. 912 million, 852, 619, or $620. Still not sure about that last dollar. Uh, but that's the base security deposit. That's the money that, that's the only thing that we currently have any money under. Um, then there's the operating life deposit, the old, uh, which is supposed to address the concern that an operator may expend all of their reserves. So this is supposed to start taking security when an oil sands mine gets 15 years from running totally out of reserves. Uh, these aren't scheduled to start until I think the soonest one in the 2030s. Uh, then the asset safety factor deposit, this is purely just a copy of the LLR. It's based around the 3.0 rule that you, you're mine has to be worth three times as much as the cost estimated cost of cleaning up the mine. We've never taken any security under it. No one's ever dropped below three. Uh, and can then I just can I jump in here for a second, Drew? Sure. I, I've I've often wondered why, and we should where these the asset uh, the liability numbers that I used uh, earlier uh, came from a, uh, numbers that were released in 2018, where the National Observer had foit a, a came across a PowerPoint presentation given by Robert Wadsworth, who is the VP of Liability and Closure, I think was his title, with yeah. the Alberta Energy Regulator. And and it his his team was tasked with coming up with with new liability estimates. Those so the numbers I gave you were those numbers: 130 billion for for the oil sands, and the official number, however. Uh, of the AER was 30 billion until just recently when they bumped it up to 50 million for some reason. We don't even know, we don't even know why. But I'm wondering, Drew, if that lower number is deliberate in order that it doesn't trigger any requirement for security 
on the part of the companies? Uh, yes. I mean, the lower number is a significant part of the asset safety factor deposit. So one of the mines in 2022 had an asset safety factor score of 5.79. So if you were to jump from the 30 billion to the 130 billion, they'd go below three. Uh, so there's at least one mine who, if we had treat, if we had done, if we had taken Wadsworth seriously and acted on what he was telling us, instead of that being kind of kept quiet and left for another day, which still has not come, we would have had taken security from at least one mine, maybe two. Okay. Um, well, okay. So th now we've got what, what's the the fourth part of this program? The fourth one is the funniest, the outstanding reclamation deposit, which is the operator who runs the mine every year gets to say, well, this is how much, how many hectares of reclamation we plan to finish this year. And if they don't finish that amount, then they might have to pay a deposit. So most years, the mines say we're not doing any reclamation this year. And then they don't, <laughs> and they don't pay a deposit. And it, it's just that simple. They can say, we'll do two or three, and they'll do two or three, and then they're fine, or they'll do nothing. And it, it's, it's, it's absolutely nothing. There's no incentive for them to do anything because of that. Uh, and those are the four parts. So three of them don't do anything. And one of them just carries forward whatever amount of money was already in Alberta's pocket when the program came in. Goodness gracious. So they've, again, it seems like Alberta is, has, you know, the, the program was designed the, to, for the same objectives that on the conventional side, which is kick the can down the road. That and eventually, th that there will always be a, a revenue and there and that it's assumed that the revenue will be high enough when the time comes to get the asset reclaimed. Yeah, and the 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 four parts of it, the fourth one is a total joke, the, the one where they get to pick if they want to do reclamation. The first one only takes security at the outset. It's supposed to take roughly amount enough security on the base deposits to close the mine into like a safe state. So to shut it down, then find a buyer who will reopen it. It has a little more than that because of the weird historical carry forward, but that's the amount of security that we really have. We have just enough to supposedly close them off temporarily until the new buyer takes them. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine it's highly unlikely that, that, $912 million would cover that cost for all of the, all of the plants. Yeah. I, I have some doubts about how they've gotten, and yeah, it's not connected to that number. So who knows if it's enough for even that, but that's kind of the idea. And the other two assume two kinds of ends for oil sands miners. One is that they're going to actually get all of their bitumen out of the ground, empty their reserves before they close. So in that situation, the MFSP would be a mediocre approach, leaves it for the very end. It's pretty high risk. Um, and the other one is very gradual, long-term price declines. And even there, it has some math errors. The It assumes that mines profits drop at a totally stable rate connected to prices, but the cost of operating a mine doesn't drop as the price of oil drops. That connection should never have been in there. It, it is it by including a math error, 
it smooths out the rate at which a mine will lose its profitability because relatively small drops in oil prices can cut into profitability really fast. Now, we've just, uh, yes, yesterday, uh, COP28 ended with the, the issuing of the, the final agreement amongst the parties. And I think this is a good time to talk about fails to account for climate policy related risks. And I would add in there that it's not the climate policy so much as the energy transition that will essentially displace oil demand, destroy oil oil demand. And once it peaks in the 20 in 2030, as the IEA uh, forecasts, then it'll probably bump along on a, a plateau for a number of years and then begin begin to decline. And it's at that point that price, well, prices are likely to become very volatile before that and affecting their profits. And and so we're talking about a, a process that's, you know, maybe five, six years away, you know, in the worst, in the worst case from the oil sands operators point of view. But the oil sands operators all subscribe to OPEC's slow transition narrative where oil global oil demand grows from 102 million barrels a day where it is now to 116 million barrels a day by 2045 bumps and then the, the decline doesn't start until the 2050s if it even starts then that's their outlook so from their point of view and i would imagine the, the regulator shares it that you know we've got decades but again this gets back to alberta you know ordinary people hope for the best plan for the worst but the oil sands operator, the regulators, plan for the best and just close their eyes. They just ignore the worst case scenario. And the given the, the magnitude of the liabilities, it's gobsmacking that that's not operating in the public interest. That's operating in the industry's interest. Yes. Yeah. We The most likely outcome is that the most of this falls onto the public. Uh, and that's just that's totally ridiculous. And it's hard to even though the paper goes into the details and anyone that interests them should read it. The basic story is they haven't taken any security from these oil sands operators in 13 years now. Uh, we're not we're not preparing for any kind of situation in the system, any kind of situation that destroys the profitability of bitumen mines. And that situation is becoming really likely. We don't have any insurance against it at all. Yes, uh, I, I agreed wholeheartedly. Uh, okay, so let's talk about how the MFSP, Mine Financial Security Program, just to remind listeners, overestimates the value of assets. How does it do that? Uh, so the big one is that it, as uh, I already mentioned, that kind of math error that connects uh, profits to uh, oil and gas prices, where it doesn't it doesn't appreciate that profits will fall faster than oil and gas prices fall because the inputs stay the same. Uh, so that even even on a a medium slide, and there's some case studies that Andrew Leach sort of wrote into the paper to show how this doesn't work. If oil prices decline steadily on a three or four year path, the Calculation under the mine financial security program continuously year over year overestimates how valuable the mine is going to be. So that security won't be obtained until basically, or won't be asked for from a mine operator until the very year before the mine is totally worthless. 
And at that point, the mine operator is not going to put up tens of billions of dollars in security. They're going to send a letter back saying, the mine we have is worthless. You know, we're not posting anything. Goodbye. Uh, so that's what it sets us up for. And there's two examples in the paper that we refer to that really stood out. One is the giant mine, the gold mine up in the Northwest Territories where that happened and giant mine became a giant. Uh, sorry, that's a stupid bit. Um, a, a huge uh, public liability. It's an environmental catastrophe. The current plan is to leave a bunch of arsenic frozen in the ground, artificially frozen with a giant refrigeration technology forever. Uh, it's the dumbest and weirdest plan I've ever heard. And the other one is coal in the Appalachians in the U.S., where it's destroyed uh, tons of their water. All the uh, coal companies used a method called self-bonding, where they just said, well, we'll pay. We'll pay. Don't worry. We've got lots of money. We'll pay. Until the year they said, actually, it turns out we're bankrupt and walked away from hundreds and billion, hundreds of billions of liabilities. And in the U.S., it's worse because they also... Uh, those those coal companies were responsible for paying for the treatment of the miners they gave black lung to, and they also walked away from those liabilities. There's an important uh, a point here, uh, Drew, that comes out of the the observation comes out of the the work we did on the um, on the conventional side, which is that when companies get in trouble, more often than not, the AER the regulator bent the rules for them, and yep. And I think this is a, 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 a it's a principle. It's a it, it, that we can apply here. The, we can infer that the the flexible application of the rules on the conventional side, because it's the same regulator, and very often it's the same companies, uh, will also apply on the oil sand side. So if any of these companies get into some kind of a bind where where you know the first instinct of the regulator will likely be to be to back off and, and we already saw agree? 2021 during uh, the low oil prices caused by covid if they had been applying the mine financial security program uh as written they were supposed to get an amount of security i don't know how much it was they still haven't ever made that public and they immediately changed one of the regulations to not count that year's low oil price just say well this is this is unnatural. This is unrealistic. We're, we're ignoring this year's number and we're not taking security. So we're already two years past the point where we've seen them refuse to take security under a program that barely takes any security already. Uh, so when that happens again, whenever oil prices go down because of some response to climate change or whatever happens next, Absolutely. The safe prediction is the government is going to change the rules again and say, well, never mind. We actually always know that the bitumen mines will be valuable until the end of time. So don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just going to happen again. There's a, there's a scenario that economists have talked about in which the uh, it either looks like oil is going to peak soon or sometime after it's peaked. But the low cost producers in the Middle East are, you know, they watch, they're watching this and they go, okay, we've supported the price of oil for, you know, as they're doing now, right? Saudis, you know, I think they've cut 5 million barrels of, of production. The Saudis, I think, are responsible for three-ish million. And the Saudis and others go, you know what? It costs us five bucks to, to produce a barrel of oil. We're going to do what we did in late 2014. And we're just going to open the taps 
We're going to flood the market and we're going to drive the price down and all, you know, these other low cost, per, uh, sorry, high cost producers that are benefiting from, from our uh, willingness to sacrifice uh, some production, we're going to drive them out of the market. And, and, you know, so we saw really, really low prices in, in 2015 and part of 2016. And, you know, that's a very plausible scenario. It might not come, come about, but it's plausible. And it might, and then, and that might come about, you know, fairly reasonably. So in a, in a reasonable length of time. So my, my point here is that that's just one example of a scenario where maybe we don't even have to get deep into demand destruction. We don't have to, to have the markets decline by 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 million barrels a day of demand. And the market players are are force are putting the 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 pressure on the oil sands operators who then would be required to put more security up and probably won't be let off the hook. Yeah. And in the situation where another country, you were saying Saudi Arabia, if Saudi Arabia starts to become really competitive and try to push uh, the oil sands out of operation, when you look at the Alberta government, what I would expect the Alberta government to do is start subsidizing the oil sands. So not only are they not going to take security, but the more likely political action is, well, we'll try to save the industry by just outright giving them subsidies to try to make them competitive. I can see that scenario work, uh, coming to pass because uh, if you accept OPEC's uh, slow transition argument, then the... Uh, the fluctuations in in oil prices really are still a continuation of the cyclical commodity price cycle. You know the, the stuff we've seen for decades, right? So they, in from their point way of thinking, they would say, "Well, look, you know, sure, demand might be start to decline in twenty or thirty years, but for right now, this is just a, a cycle. There's been some aberration, you know, like the the Saudis opening the taps, and so we it's important for us to maintain the integrity." of the you know keep the the industry financially whole until that passes i can absolutely see that them responding that way and you know what it wouldn't matter if it was the current united conservative uh, party or if it was the new democratic party the left-leaning party that, that was in power i bet you both of them would do it and that that i don't know if i could predict and i mean i'm who knows what would exactly happen but yeah, and I, I kind of I kind of put you on the spot here, Drew, because that's very, yeah. that's very political, and that's not that's you're not a political scientist, so I'll, uh, I won't ask you to respond to that. Okay, it, it, that was unfair of me, but the 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 last part of the the last one of the four uh, deficiencies here is delayed remediation and reclamation, and when I saw that, I. I it wasn't obvious to me that that was a, would be a conclusion to come out of your MFSP analysis. Could you explain that, please? So if you value the unreclaimed hectares of land as a liability on the asset to liability method, uh, and you were to use a, a more accurate number of how much it's going to cost to try to reclaim those, uh, you could give companies a financial incentive to reclaim parts of their mine site that they've done mining underneath. Most of the mine operators don't reclaim very much land at all 
other than the the one infamous little example site, I think on one of the Suncor or Syncrude mines that they reclaimed to try to prove they could do it. So it's like a thumbnail of land. Yeah, it's like a pit lake. It's not even a tailing spot. Yeah. But most of them, uh, when they finish with an area, they just turn it into a tailing spot. They just start flooding it with tailings because they need to put the tailing somewhere and they're not closing the parts of the mine that they don't really need anymore. Uh, and a good mine financial security program, if this were redesigned, could incentivize them to try to reduce their footprints, uh, the mine footprint is faster. And that the the goofy fourth factor I talked about where they get to decide how much reclamation they do every year and then they only pay a deposit if they don't do it. Uh, a good version of that could have incentivized them to make their footprints smaller. Uh, this problem is connected to the gigantic footprint of the tailings uh, pits. Yeah, I've had an opportunity to interview a number of of scientists who work uh, in tailing the oil sands tailings pond research, and and I think it's fair to say that they don't yet have a technology. They have a couple of technologies, but they're very expensive, and they're still working looking for technologies that that are effective, but also at low cost. Because that is one of the things that if, if you're not familiar with the oil and gas industry, as many of the our listeners may not be. They want to do everything for the lowest possible cost. And if there's no pressure on them to act uh, uh, you know, from the regulators, then they will delay until they get the technology, the, you know, the approach, uh, the process that does it at the lowest possible cost. And they simply, you know, I, I found my five years in the industry, I saw it all the time. And I'm I'm seeing it now, uh, when you know on the conventional side and and on the oil sand side, and the, but I have another question for you. We'll maybe wrap up the interview with this, Drew. And you may not have an answer. You may not have an answer because this is kind of an an oddball question. Uh, but I was reading the uh, a document that was foiped by the Narwhal by Drew Anderson at the Narwhal. It was called the uh, uh, Liability Narrative, and it was dated 2019. I think it was for internal use only. And it, it, it really described in detail the many, many, many liability issues that the, the AER is facing on, on both the uh, conventional and the oil sand side. But the one thing it said that stuck with me is that the oil sands operators had treated their tailings ponds not as liabilities, as one would, you know, think. They had them on their books, on their books, on their financial statements as assets. Why would they do that? Do you any insights there? So we spent some time trying to figure that out. Martin Olszynski in particular put a lot of time to trying to figure out what that meant and asking the AER some questions because he was involved in the mine financial security program review, which I think is done. It went on last year. And then we haven't heard anything about it since. We were a little worried the program would be replaced before the paper came out. Yeah, of course, not, not didn't end up being a concern. The AER does not work fast. So there's no word on where that's going. Um, so exactly how they're accounting for their tailings ponds is is very difficult to find out. We didn't get into this part of the paper much, but how they calculate their liabilities is uh, really opaque. We don't know. They they don't provide good explanations to the public of how they decide how much it's going to cost to reclaim any of these mines 
or what the exact endpoint of the mine is. So it's equivalent land capability is the legal requirement of what they have to meet. But these were peat bogs to begin with, and most experts still seem to think they'll never be able to rebuild those. So they're going to turn it into a flat pine tree farm uh, in rows, maybe, and they'll say good enough. So that might be the outcome that they're hoping for. And lots of them look like they plan to leave their tailings there. They're just going to cover them with water and their tailings, what is it, uh, water capping, the funniest idea imaginable, which is that if you just put all that uh, toxic sludge into a lake, eventually it'll settle to the bottom and just clean water will be on top of it. And that's, if you were to describe that in another way, that that is a plan to do absolutely nothing and hope the problem just goes away. But that's what a lot of them are still relying on. And they're accounting sludge at the bottom of lakes as having been basically already handled uh, i want to i want to make a not good i want to make an observation um uh i for part three of the unethical oil series i have interviewed more tailings pond scientists engineers toxicologists and so on than it's probably healthy for one poor reporter i mean this is very very technical takes a lot of work on my part because I don't have a science background, you know, to understand these kind of issues and, and make sure I'm asking the right questions. But for not for all of them, but quite a number of them, I've asked them off off camera, and it would be off the record, so I can't identify anybody and or quote anybody. But I would ask them the question, like, you know, these people, you work with these companies all the time as part of your research. Do you think that they'll ever pay to reclaim these assets? And not a one, not a one of those scientists has ever said yes. They all say that as citizens and taxpayers of Alberta, uh, they worry, uh, they think that the companies fully intend to walk away from their from their their liabilities. And that that underlies a lot. You know, Albertans ought to be awfully anxious about that. That that shouldn't surprise anyone. That's in the nature of a private company. It's going to try to maximize its profits. It's not going to pay for any environmental liabilities that the regulatory system doesn't require it to pay for. If they can convince a regulator to design a system wrong so that it doesn't take any security and then walk away at the end of the day, that is what they do. Um, so that's, that's a very realistic possibility. Uh, Remember that's, that that's that, the most likely possibility. That is, it, I'll I'll try to make it more clear. Absolutely, the most likely thing coming for Alberta is that a decline in oil and gas prices will ditch the oil sands liabilities onto the Albertan taxpayers and to just the environment. That it just won't get cleaned up. That's the most likely outcome. And I would further argue that the the uh, behavior of the companies, because most of these companies. Uh, they're operating in the oil sands, or many of them anyway, have conventional operations as well, right? Yeah. And and one of the things that I think we can say is there there is decades of history here of them evading their responsibilities. They dump their liabilities on small companies that go bankrupt. That would be one thing, liability dumping. Another is that on the conventional side, the AER has... I've got I've got a, a graph and maybe even you know I got it out of the liability narrative. The point is that rather than 
reclaim the expensive oil well sites that could have contaminated soil, which then escalates the, the, the costs considerably. They first do the dry holes, which have never seen a hydrocarbon, so they're pretty cheap. Then they do the gas wells, which there's no oil to, to leak and there's nothing to leak and, and contaminate the soil. So they, high, they basically high grade their liabilities and they leave the rest of the stuff for, you know, whenever, right? So th th my point here is that there are two examples right there of the industry. It's baked into the culture. It's not like one company or another company. or This is like the whole industry has done this and done it for decades. And why would we expect that somehow now the same companies or the companies that grew up in the same culture would suddenly turn around and be virtuous and say, oh, no, we're going to take we're going to spend one hundred and thirty billion dollars to reclaim all those assets at the end of their life. I think that Albertans should be skeptical as hell about this, as should Canadians outside of Alberta, because there is no they, if it falls on the Alberta taxpayer, it's so big, it will undoubtedly fall on the Canadian taxpayer, too. Yeah, and there's I don't think there's any sane approach that says the industry is just going to change its culture. Um, that's not happening. The The only possibility would be political reform of the Alberta uh, energy regulator and the Alberta government's approach to these problems. Industry is going to be completely consistent with everything we've seen from them for decades and decades. That's that's we have private industry. It's fine. It's private industry. It's this is why I'm mostly going after the regulator. It's the regulator who has and the Alberta government, Alberta Energy sets policy on most of these. The AER carries it out. It is the government's failure here that has caused this. Well, on that note, uh, thank you very much, Drew. It's been insightful as as always. And uh, your timing is great because now your paper will make it into part three of our series. So thank you very much for this. Thank you. Take it easy.